I suggest that we can prove the existence of God from the impossibility of the contrary. As Christians, we do not give up our intellect. The strongest evidence and argument for the existence of God is that without a belief in God, you can't prove anything. How can the law be material? That's the question I'm going to ask you. I would say no. And can you give me an example of anything other than God that's immaterial? Welcome to the Revealed Apologetics Podcast. I'm your host, Elias Ayala, and here at Revealed Apologetics, Our goal is to equip believers to defend the Christian faith, and we want to equip you to do it in a way that is honoring to God and faithful to Scripture. So sit back, relax, get your thinking caps on, and let's dive into our topic for today. In this episode, I was invited to be interviewed on a podcast called X Garage um, on the topic of presuppositional apologetics. Uh, This interview went very well in my estimation, and it is a good resource in better understanding the presuppositional method of apologetics. And while one does not need to be an expert in philosophy and apologetics, it does at times get a little deep into philosophical issues, but I think the average listener should be fine. I hope you enjoy. All right, looks like we are live. Hey, everyone, uh, this is Jake with X Garage, the podcast. We're with uh, Elias Ayala. That is kind of a mouthful. That was good. <laughs> cool. was really Thank, good. You. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, I'm, just, I'm just Jake. It's pretty easy, you know, keep the name simple over here. Um, so you're, you're over in New York, correct? Yes, I'm on Long Island, which is that little fish-looking island right off New York. <laughs> cool. Awesome. Yeah, so I, I thought it'd be fun to have you on and kind of talk about uh, your approach to Christian apologetics. Um, I, I'm of a similar uh, mindset as you. I, I love uh, what's called presuppositional apologetics. Love Greg Bonson, but I'd, uh, you're you seem to be a, uh, an expert. You've been in a few debates and uh, handle yourself very well. So I just thought it'd be fun to have a, a moment just to kind of get your your thoughts on the the method and uh, maybe just kind of introduce people to uh, what that is and uh, yeah, your approach. Yeah, well, presuppositional apologetics is a specific kind of apologetic methodology that's usually associated with those in the Reformed camp, those who consider themselves Calvinists. Um, Calvinists are not exclusively presuppositional. You have folks like um, John Gerstner and R.C. Sproul who are um, who were classical apologists. So the classical apologetic school, which is a two-step approach in which you try to demonstrate Uh, the existence of a theistic God by using the traditional proofs like the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the moral argument. Um, And then when you establish the existence of a theistic God, then you narrow down the scope to try to demonstrate 
that the theistic God that you've just demonstrated is the Christian one. And so classical apologists would then appeal to um, the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, right? And so they would they would argue along those lines to demonstrate the truth of the Christian perspective. Um, classical apologetics is a bottom-up approach where you work your way up to the conclusion that God exists. And this is very different than the presuppositional um, method. The presuppositional method is a, is a top-to-bottom approach. We start with the truth of the entire system of the Christian worldview. And we argue that if it were not true, you couldn't, you couldn't know anything at all. In other words, the Christian system of thought is the necessary prerequisite to know anything at all, to prove anything at all, to use argumentation, uh, to know any specific item of human experience. So we would, we would argue that the Christian worldview system is the necessary precondition for intelligible experience. In other words, the, what the Bible says about the world must be true in order for our very arguing to make sense. Now, granted, we believe that unbelievers or, or anyone that does not hold to the non-Christian worldview, we believe that they do argue. Uh, we, we believe that they use logic. We believe that they actually know things, but not because their worldview is true, but rather because they actually are borrowing from the Christian worldview system in order to... Um, uh, to ground anything that they're doing. And of course, they're not doing this explicitly, of course, right? Um, but that's kind of along the line. So uh, we believe the Christian worldview is the necessary starting point for everything else that we do. And we argue for it. Um, I'm going to use a philosophical term here. We argue for it transcendentally. When you argue transcendentally, you are asking, what are the necessary preconditions for anything in human experience? What must be true in order for what we're doing right now to be true. And so we argue that the Christian system must be true in order for argumentation, logic, science, or anything like that to be rational. Yeah. I heard you um, in a few of your debates and in, in some of your podcasts, you talk about how, uh, like an, an example of this would be uh, transcendentally, you can know logic to be valid because deny it and you accept it. Um, can you kind of talk about that? Maybe give some more pragmatic examples of how this method methodology could be um, utilized. Right. When you when you demonstrate something transcendentally, when you argue uh, along transcendental lines, what you're doing is you're showing the truth of what you're arguing for by the impossibility of the contrary. So uh, in the debate uh, that I had with negation of P, um, I argued that we could know the laws of logic to be true and valid. By the impossibility of the contrary, that that's known um, by the impossibility of the contrary. How do I know logic is true? How do I know logic exists? How do I know logic is 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 valid? Is that if you were to deny logic, you would demonstrate their truth by your very denial. Since to rationally formulate a sentence and deny logic, if you were to say I deny logic, the very sentence that you just uttered presupposes logic, since language presupposes those logical categories like the law of identity, something is what it is and it's not what it's not, the law of uh, non-contradiction, a statement cannot be both true and false at the same time and in the same sense, and the law of excluded middle, a statement is either true or false. My sentences that I speak already presuppose those categories, even if you do not know what those categories are called. You know, right. people don't walk around saying the law of identity, you know, uh, but you presuppose it in every <laughs> word that you utter. Right. So one of the, the first complaints you hear, obviously, is, is it sounds very circular what you're what you're doing. 
Uh, and then they would probably go straight, well, even if you can show that that's true about my worldview, you're left in the same position. How do you approach that? Well, um, circular are, and people don't know this. I, I'm surprised that people don't recognize this, that all forms of circularity are not fallacious. Uh, that's just that's just a fact, especially when you're dealing with ultimate foundations. Uh, so, for example, if your philosophical perspective is that reason is my ultimate authority, and I were to ask you, how do you, how do you demonstrate that reason is your ultimate authority? Well, you're going to have to use your reason to demonstrate that reason is uh, is is valid. And so you're going to have to assume the thing you're trying to prove. And in in regards to your ultimate foundations, that's that's unavoidable. If your ultimate foundation in your epistemology, your theory of knowledge, so to speak, how we know what we know, is um, empiricism, that all knowledge comes through sense experience. And I say, demonstrate to me that uh, empiricism is, you know, your senses are valid. We're going to use your senses to prove your senses. And that's circular, <laughs> right? Right. So uh, when we're dealing with ultimate foundations, all circular, uh, all circles, so to speak, are not invalid. If you were to say, sensation is my ultimate authority, but then you seek to demonstrate the validity of your sense, your senses by appealing to something other than your senses, then sensation is not your ultimate authority. The other thing that you're appealing to to argue for sensation is your ultimate authority. And so, uh, for example, when I start with the truth of the Christian worldview, I do not demonstrate the truth of the Christian worldview by appealing to something outside the Christian worldview. Then otherwise, the Christian worldview wouldn't be my ultimate starting point. Right. So when we're right. dealing with ultimates, we're all we're automatically dealing with an issue that cannot be demonstrated by an appeal to something external to itself. Right on. Uh, so one of the uh, things, I think it was R.C. Sproul that said this in kind of his criticism of presuppositional apologetics in that mm -hmm. uh, when, when you look at evidence in this manner, it kind of leaves you stuck in your tower and the other person is stuck in their tower, unable to really bridge the gap. Um, it, obviously, th there are some people that take the, that more uh, Clarkian approach, right? Mm -hmm. um, how, how do you see, and it kind of touches a little bit, but how do you see... So ha having your presuppositions and assuming those, assuming, you know, uh, kind of where you're going at the beginning, how do you bridge that gap between, say, an atheist and yourself? Yeah, well, we have to understand that the dispute between the Christian and the atheist is not a dispute over um, individual pieces of evidence. People say, well, give me evidence God exists. And, you know, uh, and, and people will, will try to demonstrate the truth of God uh, using arguments that lead to the most probable conclusion that, that God exists, right? And they'll argue over specific evidences using certain arguments and things like that. Um, but we need to understand, this is vitally important if someone is going to do presuppositional apologetics, is that you need to understand that the nature of the dispute between the Christian and the unbeliever is a disagreement over worldview systems. I have an ultimate foundation. My ultimate foundation is the Word of God, right? There's nothing higher right. for me than the authority of God's Word. And um, that is not unique to the Christian. For the non-Christian, the atheist, he has his own Bible, so to speak. And his Bible, his ultimate authority is going to be whatever his intellectual ultimate authority is. For many atheists who are naturalists, uh, you know, if they are metaphysical naturalists, they believe that all of reality is, is fundamentally matter in motion. Um, their epistemology, their theory of knowledge is going to probably be something along the lines of empiricism. Knowledge comes through sensation, right? And so for him, sensation will be his Bible. It is his ultimate starting point. Anything that I give from my perspective 
that I'm that I'm going to say is true, if it's not validated through the census, he's going to throw it out. Why? Because my argument needs to be filtered through his ultimate authority, which affects how he interprets everything. Right. Our worldviews are the lens, the intellectual lens through which we interpret all aspects of reality. So if his lens, if he's operating on a naturalistic, atheistic uh, worldview, he's going to filter everything that I say to him through that lens. And I'm going to filter everything he says to me through the lens of Scripture. And so we're going to have fundamental disagreement over literally every fact. I, I would argue with some people from the atheist and the Christian, we would even disagree over what a cow is. If we were to take the, the animal, a cow, what is a cow? In, practical, in a practical sense, we can talk about cows in a conversation. But metaphysically, we're going we're gonna to disagree. I believe a cow is a created thing, whereas the atheist is gonna, is, is, doesn't see the cow as a created. So fundamentally, we're going to disagree as to what the nature of specific things are because we have a different outlook on life. And so or, even it, the, go ahead. Or, or even like the number one, for instance. Like Absolutely, it, it the number doesn't... one. You get into the philosophy of mathematics and what's, what is the ontological status of numbers, if there is. And are you a realist in regards to mathematics, a non-realist in regards to mathematics? All of these things, when you push past the practical level, there's going to be a fundamental disagreement between the believer and unbeliever because we have different worldviews. And so the argument goes and the criticism goes, if we have fundamentally different worldview perspectives, which affect how we interpret things and the conclusions that we come to, how can we ever communicate with each other? Where is there common ground? And for the presuppositionalist, we believe there is common ground between the uh, believer and unbeliever. What we deny is neutral ground. We don't believe there's neutral ground, that there's, a, there's any fact of human experience that we could understand in a neutral fashion. We think that common ground is the fact that the unbeliever is made in the image of God, even if he rejects that. And from the Christian perspective, because the unbeliever is made in the image of God, it is possible to communicate to him through argumentation, through appeals to logic and things like that. While he cannot um, account for logic in his atheistic worldview, we know because he's made in the image of God, he must use logic even to argue. So my job as the apologist is to um, not provide the unbeliever with new information. Like, hey, how about you consider this and maybe you can come to the conclusion God exists. My job as the apologist is to unmask the unbeliever's suppression of truth to show him that he knows the God that I'm speaking about. And the way that we do that is to show that in the, on the one hand, when he denies God with his mouth, his, his argumentation, his reasoning capacities, and all these other things are actually being borrowed from the Christian worldview and cannot be accounted for within his own worldview. And so the nature of the discussion is that I'm going to be peeling away the mask of the unbeliever to show that the things that you're doing only make sense if what the Bible says is true. And right. we, we try our best to do that by pointing, you know, logic, for example. How do you have immaterial laws of logic in a world where all there is is matter in motion. If all that exists is matter in motion and you have um, physicality, which is the fundamental aspect of reality, how do you have transcendent immaterial invariant laws of logic? You, you're arguing using logic as the naturalist does. They use logic and sometimes they do it often better than, than believers. But how do you make sense out of the utilization of non-material laws of thought in a world that is purely physical? You see, you're using tools that refute your own worldview perspective, but can only be grounded within the Christian perspective. And within the context of a respectful conversation, I would point that out. And, uh, and hopefully we can move forward in the discussion there.
Great. I think one of the things that they would probably come back to, I've seen this a couple times, where they'll say, yeah, but really your ultimate foundation is senses as well. Like even when you read the Bible, you're using your five senses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we would make um, a distinction between, and this is really important, um, because mm -hmm. people will say, you know, reason's my ultimate authority. And the Christian will say, well, the Bible's my ultimate authority. And then the unbeliever is going to be like, well, you need reason to read your Bible. So, uh, you know, clearly reason must be your ultimate authority. Um, well, we want to make a very clear distinction between what we would call proximate starting points and ultimate starting points. Proximate starting points and ultimate starting points. My proximate starting point is my reason. Uh, you're right. I have to reason to, uh, to read the Bible. But my ultimate starting point is the, uh, is the Word of God, the triune God of Scripture, as many presuppositionalists would, would say. And what that means is that while I use my reasoning to read the Bible, I also affirm the metaphysical reality that is given to us in Scripture, that that metaphysical reality must be true to even make sense out of the reasoning that I'm using. So while I must use my reason and my sensation, I do not use that independently from affirming the worldview system in which that makes sense. You see, the unbeliever wants to use reason, but he lacks a metaphysical context in which reason can make sense. So, for example, um, I'm sorry, I'm getting an incoming call. I just got that. There we go. So, for no example, um, if you are saying reason is my ultimate authority, but you do not have a, meta a, a view of, of or a theory of reality, which we call metaphysics. How can you make sense out of reasoning? You need to know what reality is like in order to say that this makes sense within that context. Reasoning is not done in a vacuum. Logic is not used in a vacuum. There's a metaphysical context in which those things must be planted. Otherwise, you're just arbitrarily using these tools, but you're not accounting for them. The Christian worldview says, yes, I use my senses, I use my reasoning, but these make sense and we could account for them given the metaphysical context in which I'm doing them. What is that metaphysical context? The word of God and the ontological trinity, that God is a trinity. He is the ontological and metaphysical context in which something like logic, reason, and all these other things make sense. So we have proximate starting points. Yes, I use my senses, right? I touch, I smell, but I can only make sense out of them because of the broader metaphysical context in which I find myself, namely the context that's revealed to us in scripture. Great. Uh, and then, uh, so another common direction for them to go after that, I, in my experience, is so what about uh, Islam, right? So they, they have a similar starting point as you. Why do you think that you have a better starting point than they do? Mm. Well, first, we want to understand the biblical basis for uh, the apologetic approach. And I think Greg Bonson, who was a, a famous uh, presuppositionalist, um, he pointed out that the, um, the nature of our argumentation is, is very well reflected in the book of Proverbs, chapter 26, verse 4, which at first glance sounds very contradictory. Here's what it says. It says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. And then it says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he become wise in his own eyes. So which is it? Are we to not answer the fool, or are we to answer the fool? Well, I mean, this is not a contradiction. I mean, the, the, the not answering the fool is just the previous verse of the other, the following verse, answer the fool. Obviously, the writer of Proverbs is not telling us contradictory things in just the next sentence. So the, the, um, the issue is that both are true and they are applicable to apologetics. For the presuppositionalist, we do not answer a fool according to his folly. That is to say that we do not adopt unbelieving thought categories when we're engaging with the unbeliever. 
Because if we do, we're going to be starting from a foolish starting point, right? We'll be like the ones who build their house on the sand as opposed to the one who builds their house on the rock. But then the Bible says also, answer the fool according to his folly. Hypothetically grant the unbeliever's position to show where it leads. And when we do that, we show that it leads to foolishness. This is what you call an internal critique. We grant hypothetically the truth of the unbeliever's perspective to show where that leads. Now, when you're talking about the Muslim, the Muslim grants certain things, namely the, the writings of Moses um, and, uh, you know, the Injil, the gospel of Jesus. And when we appeal to Moses, for example, in Deuteronomy, where he gives us the test of a true prophet, right? Um, we see that Muhammad on his own basis fails that miserably. Um, he grants us, uh, the, uh, for example, um, the Quran teaches us that we are to test uh, the words of Muhammad by what has gone before, right? And what has gone before? Well, the gospel of Jesus and the writings of Moses. But when we look at those sources, they seem to, con uh, Muhammad contradicts what has gone before. And when you appeal to say, for example, the teachings of Jesus and his, um, his uh, claims to deity, um, and you look at what's there in the Gospels and what Jesus taught, what does the Muslim say? Well, the Christian scriptures were corrupted. Ah, so the Christian scriptures were corrupted. So then how could I use the test that is given to us in the Quran, which says to test what has gone before? The Quran is telling me, test what, uh, test what Muhammad is saying by what has gone before. But when I appeal to the things that have come before, you're telling me they've been corrupted. So now the, the Quran is teaching me to test by a standard that now the Muslim is saying doesn't exist because it's been corrupted. So now I have right. to just now take what the Muslim is saying just on the Muslim's own authority. You see, so um, it, Islam shoots itself in the foot. Um, and uh, really, uh, there's no way to validate whether it's true by using uh, the Quran's own standard. Um, th that's just one way we can grant hypothetically what the Muslim is saying to show that it kind of leads to a dead end. Also, metaphysically, um, because the um, Muslim conception of God denies the Trinity, you get into deeper philosophical issues of, and we don't have to get into it here, but there's a, a deep philosophical issue called the one and the many. And this was a question that occupied the minds of philosophers throughout ancient Greece, uh, where they tried to make sense out of both uni unity and diversity in reality, which was more fundamental, unity or diversity. Those who said unity was more fundamental, they would say unity is the most fundamental aspect of reality. And so diversity is illusory. It's illusion. And so you have like pantheistic views that, that derive from that. Then you have people on the other side of the spectrum that said the fundamental aspect of reality is plurality. And so there you had the atomists, those kind of like atheistic perspective where the fundamental aspect of reality is matter and motion. These kind of these individual atoms make up the fundamental aspect of reality. But then how do you make sense out of things that that unify um, unify things? For example, if everything is plurality, then how do you get the laws of logic, which are laws of thought, which unify everything? So so if you were a, an atomist, you couldn't account for logic. If you were, you know, uh, a pantheist and everything is one, then you have to say that human experience is illusion. So these Greek um, philosophers tried to grapple which is more fundamental. And on Islam, you have to have the fundamental aspect of reality must be one since uh, Allah is one. He's not a triunity of persons. But the fundamental aspect of reality for the Christian is the triune God, the ontological trinity in which unity and plurality are equally ultimate. One does not derive from the other. They are equally ultimate, given the nature and essence of the triune God. And so from the triune perspective, we can ground 
reality and the one and the many, which provide a foundation for logic, making sense out of the oneness of things and the plurality of things. So that's a much deeper philosophical issue, but it is related to other things like knowledge. You know, when I make a statement about something in a human experience, that statement itself in a very profound way presupposes both unity and plurality. How do you account for that? You can't do it on Islam. How do you account for love on, and on Islam? Love would seem to be something that is based in relationship. But Allah being one in nature and essence doesn't have relationship unless he creates. And so love is actually a contingent property um, for the God of Islam, whereas relationship and love is an essential feature of the triune God since prior to the creation of all things, um, he was in eternal relationship within the persons of the Trinity. So again, you can go in a bunch of different directions and there are huge and interesting implications by going off those rabbit trails. But that's right. how I would address that <laughs> philosophical internal critique sort of, uh, sort of view. Right. So if, if, if uh, any aspect of God is contingent on his uh, relationship to creation, like him needing an, uh, another to love, he can't be that property. So God would be unable to be love at that point. Uh, yes. Um, I wouldn't say that contingent properties are necessarily a bad thing. I think God may have properties. For example, God is um, our savior, but prior to creation, there was no one to save. So right. if you never say, so see, it's not always a, a bad thing. But I no, think, yeah, yeah go ahead. I was going to say, because I, I think, you know, if they consider scripture to be still a f foundational. Uh, thing you know, they still I think they would think of God as being love Himself, but they are not able to justify that within their position. Right, right. And I think another important thing too, when you're asking what are the preconditions for intelligible experience, if the foundation of your worldview is a God who is able to lie, how do you escape the paradox of a God who may be lying to you? You see, from the Christian perspective, people bring this up, you know, hey, Mr. Christian, how do you know you're not being deceived by an evil God? Well, again, this this brings up the issue of internal, external worldview critiques. To say that God might possibly be evil is not an internal critique of my worldview, because within my right. worldview, it's impossible for God to be a deceiver. So what you're doing is you're critiquing my worldview with a hypothetical example that comes from outside my worldview, which is an invalid way to critique a worldview in the first place. But on Islam, God can deceive. Now, you can say, well, but the Quran says he's this way. that Yeah, but maybe that's part of the deception. So how can you have a God who might feasibly be lying to you, be the foundation for knowledge? Because anything you claim to know may be false because it may be a product of the misleading of, of your God, which is which is your foundation. So uh, right. so there's a whole bunch of issues that are related to uh, to that if you adopt a Muslim perspective or or any other kind of perspective in which the God, who is your ultimate foundation, is able to deceive in that way. Right on. Uh, and then just one last thing. Um, so a lot of this gets really kind of up in the air, uh, mm -hmm. hard to understand for a lot of people. How uh, if, if somebody wants to get into presuppositional apologetics, um, or approach things from what they would consider a more biblical approach. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any advice on how do you have conversations with your average Joe that, you know, because it does get pretty easy to take these concepts and just kind of, yes, you know, destroy people with them. <laughs> uh, yes. And they can be very complicated. And, and of course, I think the risk is to get bogged down in a lot of the philosophical terminology. Um, and, and for me, I often, I often do that because, um, my access to presuppositional apologetics 
was through Van Til and Bonson, which they were addressing a lot of these philosophical issues. So we kind of adopt the right. language. However, one of the um, uh, the great desires of Greg Bonson, if people who are listening to this don't know who Greg Bonson is, they should really look him up. Greg Bonson, Bonson is B-A-H-N-S-C-N. And if correct. you want a good introduction <laughs> to apologetics, what was that? I said correct. You got, I got the spelling right. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, I got it. I got it. But if they're interested in kind of being introduced to, they want to, they really want to get the book Always Ready, which is um, a series of, of articles, a book, but it's a series of, of Bonson's outlines uh, giving the biblical foundation for apologetics and how it's applied. And he does it in a very easy to understand uh, way. Um, but one of the great desires of Bonson before he passed was to um, really take presuppositional apologetics, as he would call it, to the streets so that the average person can use this. Now, think about it. If presuppositional apologetics is the biblical method and uh, that that would mean that everyone who's a Christian should be able to use it. God's not going to command us to do something, but then not give us the tools to actually do what he commands. So the principles, the principles of presuppositional apologetics are right there in Scripture. You know, for example, that passage in Proverbs 26, uh, I think it's 26, 4, um, where it says, answer the fool and don't answer the fool. You can use in a very practical way that uh, method with anyone. Okay, if what you're saying about the world is true, Mr. Unbeliever, whoever you're talking to, you know, try and show, ask questions, try and show where that leads. You know, show where, you know, um, that it leads to foolishness. Now, yep. you ask questions and you, you kind of, uh, you know, you need to kind of engage in conversation and, and things like that. But the method is, is quite simple. Don't adopt the unbelieving thought patterns of the world. Stay committed to the foundation of Scripture, but hypothetically grant what the unbeliever is saying to show where it leads. And you're going to have to learn a little bit about what the unbeliever, you know, uh, believes and ask questions and things like that. But Bonson was famous for saying that, you know, let the unbeliever talk because uh, he'll actually give you just the right amount of rope that you need to hang him. <laughs> yeah. um, and of course, he didn't mean that in a violent way, but but oftentimes the unbelievers will give you um, just what you need to show the absurdity of their own position. I'll give you an example. I was speaking with a friend who was an atheist. He was um, a metaphysical naturalist. He believed all that existed was matter in motion. And so he believed that human beings were purely physical. That's it. No immaterial aspect to man. And so I told my friend, ready? I don't believe that as a Christian, obviously. But I'm going to answer the fool according to his folly. All right. So you believe that human beings are purely physical, right? And he's like, that's right. And I say, do you know that um, the physical body is constantly changing? And he's like, yeah. It's like your cells get recycled and stuff. So physically, you're not the same person you were a moment ago. He's like, that's correct. And I said, so if you are constantly changing and you don't have anything that endures throughout time, on your view, you have no enduring personal identity it's kind of like what heraclitus the ancient greek philosopher said a man never steps into the same river twice you step into the water you step out but when you step back in the water that your feet was touching already flowed downstream and that's the same thing with physical objects if you're purely physical then you have no personal identity since your person your physical makeup is constantly changing and you know what he said he said yeah that's right he says i don't exist because i don't have personal identity throughout time and I said, that's interesting. So I guess I win the debate, don't I? And he's like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, if you don't exist, I'm not arguing with anybody. And he's like, wait, 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 wait. That's not what I meant. Wait, I? That's not what I meant? I assumes personal identity throughout time. You see, his view, if we um, granted it, we can show 
the silliness of where it leads. And that was one example he saw precisely where I was going with that. Now, a more, um, a more, I don't want to say slick, uh, a, a, <laughs> a more intelligent atheist who understands the implications of that perspective will not always um, tell you straight out, you know, his view. Sometimes people that I've spoken with, and this is not everyone, of course, uh, they will hide their own perspective so that you don't have much to attack. And then they'll bombard you with a bunch of questions. That's why it's important to ask questions. It is not your job as a defender of the faith to sit back and answer every single objection that the unbeliever raises. You know, you have a right to ask questions too, right? And so we want to make sure that we don't get bullied into a corner uh, answering objection after objection after objection. We want to be able to interact with the person and see what that person's worldview is. Let them put all their cards on the table because as a Christian, that's what we want to do. Hey, I believe the Bible. I believe the Christian worldview. You could ask me anything about the Christian world. This is what I believe. Sometimes people are slick and they hide what they believe um, so that there's really nothing you can shoot at. And they, they put themselves in a position where all they need to do is sit back and deny everything you say. But then when right. you ask them to defend their own position, then they, they don't do it. They'll say something like, well, you're making the claim that God exists. So that, you know, it's the burden of proof is on you, not me. Um, and you, gotta, you wanna be careful for that. Yeah, I, I shared a meme today on our, uh, or a couple days ago on our Instagram page that was uh, somebody saying, um, I had a picture like of a lumberjack and basically mm -hmm. saying, uh, hey, don't tell, it's fine if you believe what you wanna believe, but don't tell me that I should believe the same thing. Right. You know, or don't, don't tell me that I should do what you're doing. And basically just kind of fi finding those moments of uh, self-refuting statements, you know, right. where they're trying to tell you, hey, don't don't tell me what to do, but they're doing the same thing in the same right. Right. Don't shove breath. your views down my throat, and then right. you say, "Fine, I won't shove my views down your throat if you don't shove your views, namely the view that I shouldn't shove my views down others down my throat." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yep. Uh, yeah. So that would be a self a self refuting statement, and and it's really important to recognize self refuting statements um, because a lot of times Christians who really haven't looked into these things, don't know how to recognize them. Um, right. And there are common ones out there. You know, for example, you have the view out there called scientism. Scientism is the view that all knowledge comes through scientific investigation and, and demonstration. So they'll say something to the effect, all knowledge comes through scientific demonstration. Now that sounds, you know, like, oh my goodness. Well, I guess if we haven't scientifically proven it, do we really know it? Um, but then when you reflect upon the nature of that statement, if all knowledge comes through, let, uh, answer the fool now, right? Mm -hmm. If all knowledge comes through scientific demonstration or an experimentation, what scientific experiment did you did you do to come to that conclusion? Right. Well, the answer is you didn't come to that <laughs> conclusion using science. So if the statement is true, all knowledge comes through scientific demonstration, but they didn't come to that article of knowledge through scientific demonstration, then they don't know it. So if it's true, it's false. Uh, so, again, being equipped with a little bit of logic and being able to kind of uh, show the absurdity of some of these kind of like atheist quips, I think, are helpful in moving the conversation, clarifying um, and things like that. Great. Hey, well, guys, uh, I'm going to wrap this thing up. Uh, thank you so much, Eli, for taking some time to talk with me about uh, presuppositional apologetics. Um, where, where can people find your stuff? Will you be writing any books ever? All that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm super busy, too busy to write a book right now, but it definitely is on, on the, uh, the bucket list. 
Um, they can look me up on Facebook, um, Revealed Apologetics, and I, I post videos and things like that. I also work for the Historical Bible Society, which is this great organization where uh, the guy that I work for, he's a trial lawyer, but on his spare time, uh, he collects um, biblical manuscripts, uh, museum quality stuff in which he brings and lays out all this stuff to wherever they invite him for free. And he talks about the history and integrity of the Bible. So historicalbiblesociety.org, you can, you can check there. We have an apologetics blog called Take 10 on there where I write a lot of articles. Um, and you can, uh, would be very helpful if, if people are really interested, interested in this stuff, they could download my podcast on iTunes, Revealed Apologetics. And if they have any questions or they want me to speak somewhere or whatever, they can contact me at revealedapologetics at gmail.com. Right on. And YouTube. Cool. Sorry. And YouTube. And YouTube. <laughs> so Revealed Apologetics on YouTube as well. Well, the podcast is very good. And, and by the way, I think the, the intro music is fine. Oh, good, good, good. Oh, that was good to know. Yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. Hey, well, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, yeah, we'll see you guys around. All right. Thank you so much for having me, man. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you very much for listening to the Revealed Apologetics podcast. Uh, if you have any questions um, that you would like me to cover in a podcast episode, uh, please email them to me to revealedapologetics at gmail.com. Also, we very much um, appreciate your prayers, and if you wish to support Revealed Apologetics financially, uh, you can by doing so. Um, we have a, a PayPal account set up. Uh, you can um, uh, help us out financially um, at paypal.me slash revealedapologetics, paypal.me slash revealedapologetics, and that would be uh, greatly appreciated if, if you were able to help out financially. If not, um, we, we definitely would appreciate uh, prayer. Um, and um, once again, if, if you have any questions uh, that you'd like me to cover, revealedapologetics at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and God bless.